is Iran more dangerous today or are they appreciably less dangerous as a result of this deal? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Calling into the studio from California is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. And joining me in D.C. is FP's national security correspondent Dan DeLuce and David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, David Sanger, New York Times correspondent, probably number one among American journalists in following issues of nuclear proliferation. How's that Iran nuclear deal going? Well, David, it's a question of whether you're looking inside the four corners of the deal or you're looking right on the edges of the deal. Inside the four corners of the deal, I think the administration can make a case that it's going better than anybody had predicted or certainly their critics predicted a year ago. We found no evidence that the Iranians have cheated on elements of the deal. They flew 98 percent of their fuel out of the country or shipped it out of the country. Uh, they, From everything that we can tell from the IAEA, they have adhered to everything that they said they would go do in the first year. And the intel community tells us that they have not seen any evidence of a hidden site. That doesn't mean they're not missing something, but they haven't they Remember, haven't this is the same out. intel community that missed the Syrian nuclear program altogether. And missed – I mean, we can go back to uh, – Pakistan. You know, the Russia deal, Pakistan – uh, India, China in 1964. Right. You know, in fact, our that. intelligence community is especially good at missing uh, things that glow in the dark. That's right. Or over <laughs> or over predicting them when they're overcompensating. Okay. So, but within the deal itself, it looks like it's doing fine. So, what's the problem? It's twofold. First of all, the last week that we spent in that hardship assignment in Vienna, watching the negotiations go through. A month in Vienna, uh, yes. Soccer tour, yes. Schlager. And, yes. Right. Um, I, I won't tell you how bad the hotel bill was when I checked out. But in the last week, Secretary Kerry spent most of that time negotiating what the terms would be on the limits on Iran's ability to launch missiles and test missiles. And that has completely fallen apart. The Iranians are going ahead and doing exactly what they wanted to go do. The administration has not had a response to that. Secondly, the Isn't big- that – I just want to unpack this a little bit. Isn't that a bit troubling since no one has fought a nuclear war uh, ever in history and only nuclear weapons have been used twice? And yet people are f- fighting conventional wars all the time and they could actually use these, these missiles. Absolutely. Missiles to be more effective in fighting the kind of war they're more that's, likely to be fighting? That's absolutely right. But the Iran nuclear deal was not meant to address the missile question. That was handled by separate UN resolutions and that the Iranians violated them before the deal and they're violating them after the deal. So the question is – and you know, this is one of those boring questions that you know only New York Times correspondents can uh, – uh, raise in seriousness and write while while readers go off to sleep is, is it a violation of the deal that the Iranians are going off and doing something that's not within 
with, on those documents because those documents are only about nuclear. Um, I think it's a big problem. But I think the bigger problem is this. The, the bigger bet of the Iran deal was that the Iranian leadership would see this as an opportunity to begin to change the relationship with the United States. And a year later, we are seeing no evidence of that. In fact, quite to the contrary, we are seeing that the people who oppose the deal, the hardliners and the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and others, are using this as the moment to say, having given them the deal, we now have to do everything else we can to oppose the United States. Dan, yes. how does the deal look to you and how does David's analysis look to you? I hate to be boring, but I actually agree with him uh, wow. because the, the, the missile topic and uh, the arms embargo. Well, that, he is a kind of eminence <laughs> grease, you know, on these matters. Yes, I he would teaches, He teaches at Harvard. Well, there you go. I mean, I shouldn't even be allowed at the table. No, I mean, uh, Corey teaches at Stanford, so, you know. No, Stanford is better than Harvard. There's no question about that. Weather's certainly better. got Certainly got better weather and better food. Other than that, yeah. The sushi, the halibut sushi. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it Corey, was... do you want to swap lives here for a moment? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, in all seriousness. She's just laughing. Like, there's no way she wants to swap lives. Anyway, <laughs> exactly. Like, no, I mean, the, this was a huge gamble. And and what is it that the administration, what is it that, that Kerry and the president have in their mind uh, on this? Because there is just the narrow aspect of the agreement trying to limit their ability to enrich uranium to, to actually construct a, a nuclear weapon. And then there's these other aspects that basically weren't in the agreement and, and missiles being one of them. And so there was always this implication, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that they were helping the more moderate so-called elements of the regime, that somehow over time this would A, avert a possible war and B, somehow allow this dialogue to grow and evolve to the point where there was some kind of pragmatic relationship and a less hostile relationship and somehow help these more moderate figures uh, sort of rise in the system. But I, I wonder, you know, I mean, what happens to this after Kerry finishes his term? After, after the and Obama, after Zarif finishes his. And after Zarif finishes his. So it's actually about two people and their rapport. And when that's gone, is there anything left? And I, I, I wonder. The Do you only think thing Secretary of State Joe Biden will be able to keep this in place? When... <laughs> the, the only thing that is good news, and I bet even Corey, I bet even Corey would agree with this, is that for one year you have not heard anybody, even the Israelis, talk about the need to consider a military strike on Iran's facilities. Corey. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I actually think the deal is working. As a hesitant supporter of the deal, I mostly objected to what wasn't in the deal, not to what was in the deal. And I agree with David Sanger's judgment that the Iranians are inside the four corners of the deal. The Iranians are keeping their end of it. And that's a good thing. That's what made the deal worthwhile. And Iran's nuclear threat is, at least for a 10 or 15 year time frame, inside that box. And that's a good thing for us and a good thing for the region. I also don't think that the missile, uh, the ballistic missile programs are a violation of the deal. Moreover, we're getting pretty good at destroying ballistic missiles and other people in Iran's neighborhood are as well. So I'm less worried about that than I am about the Iranian nuclear 
program. The third thing is, I'm. it's less clear to me than I think it is to Dan that the deal is empowering hardliners. I actually think that the friction that, that we're seeing internal to the Iranian government shows that the Obama administration might have been right about that bet. Here's what I think the data is. Uh, first, just how frantic the reformists in the Iranian leadership are to get out from under Treasury Department sanctions, because I think they understand that their winning hand domestically is pushing past narrow access to the international economy. That is the part that is going to benefit the IRGC and the conservative elements in the Iranian regime that that have access to push past that and to let average Iranians be able to do business with the rest of the world. And, and so that's why Zarif is so frantic on trying to get access to banking internationally. The second thing is that I think the hardliners maneuvering domestically internal to Iranian politics shows just how frightened they are of an opening to the international community because it's clearly what the Iranian people want and it's clearly going to change the government and diminish the control of the hardliners. So so I think the bet the Obama administration made on domestic change internal to Iran looks to me to be working and that's great. I don't well, think that I don't know that we'll know until after the supreme leader dies. To tell you the truth, uh, well, and even for a while after that, Americans tend to assess these things like a year later, and Iranians and Chinese and others tend to assess these things in much longer time periods. I think you know I've been very interested in the analysis of everybody here, um, but it sounds a little bit thoughtful and lawyer. I was waiting for the butt to fall. Yeah, the, well, he's trying butt. to figure out how to deal with the fact that all three panelists have been in agreement on this subject. Well, I don't actually feel like compelled to uh, ponder that because I think all three panelists have missed the point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again. <laughs> Yet again. Because I don't, think, I don't think the point is whether – the deal is working inside of its edges or, or what the parameters are of the of the of the missile deal Be- because i think those are kind of lawyerly washington policy wonk kind of assessments to make i think the real question is is iran more dangerous today or less dangerous than they were before and the reality is that iran didn't pose an imminent nuclear threat in the sense of they would have had one this year and would not have been likely to use nuclear weapons in any case, which means that the threat that they pose was actually a threat to the region, conventional, uh, via subterfuge through Hezbollah, uh, terrorism, and, and so forth. And here we are a year later, and what we've seen is money pouring into Iran, them increasing their resources, them actually playing some role in uh, putting a lot of pressure on their neighborhood via oil prices, which is a different uh, strategy that was not available to them before, Uh, them increasing uh, the threat that comes from missiles, and them having gotten a position on the world stage that's different from the position that they had on the world stage before, more validated, more leverage, and thus more of a threat to some of their neighbors than they had been before. Hence, the recent trip of the Saudi deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, to the United States to sort of plead Saudi's case um, because they feel like they've been losing ground. And 
you know, frankly, our principal security underpinning with regard to Iran has been counterbalancing it. For a while, we did that with Iraq. Subsequently, we did it with the Gulf. And right now, the states of the Gulf remain concerned about Iran, and they see it actually growing stronger in some respects. And so, to me, we can talk about it in policy, sort of rarefied, lawyerly terms, or we can say, is Iran more dangerous today, or are they appreciably less dangerous as a result of this deal? So, so David, one way to ask your very good question here, access your analysis, is this. If you consider that the deal is going to take you to the lesser of two evils, or the right outcome here is the lesser of two evils. When you ask the question in the Gulf, what would you be more concerned about? The Iran you face today that's doing all the things you just said, or an Iran that would be doing most of what they're doing today and was also three months to three years, depending on who you believe, away from being able to make a single nuclear weapon, okay, which you can't do a whole lot with a single nuclear weapon, uh, and then build up on that. And my own view is that you're better off with the situation you have today because once you are – once you let a nation build one or two weapons, you end up on the scale that you ended up with with North Korea. So – It was George H.W. Bush who was in office when the North Koreans were first threatening to do this stuff. It was uh, Bill Clinton that tried to stop them and failed. It was George W. Bush and Corey, I think you were in that administration, that sat there saying we could never tolerate a nuclear North Korea and tolerated one that built four or five weapons. Corey, you you are such a hypocrite. Right. And And then we're at 20. And I think had Iran gone down that path, you would be thinking 10 years from now, we just made the North Korea mistake a second time. You may be thinking that in 10 years anyway. You might, but I doubt it considering that they had to ship all of that fuel out of the country. It's also true is the criticism of the agreement shifted, right? So at the beginning, it was, first of all, always warning of the imminent threat of Iran's nuclear program and something had to be done, possibly militarily. And then uh, questioning the terms of the agreement. They're not limiting them enough on uranium enrichment. They're not touching the plutonium and on and on and on. And then once the agreement was signed and there was this whole inspection regime, then the criticism shifted to you're giving them all this money, you're freeing them, you're lifting these sanctions and you're you know, empowering them and legitimizing them on the world stage. So it is important to note the criticism of the agreement kind of evolved. And notice how quiet the Israelis have been for the past six months on this? Well, beyond that, I mean, there there have been Israeli military leaders who've recently said that Netanyahu overplayed the Iran card. And they've gone further to say that had they believed the Iranians would give up the amount of fuel they gave up, they wouldn't have fought this as hard. And they didn't think at the end of the day the Iranians would allow that fuel to be shipped out. Corey? Yeah, well, uh, since I guess I'm personally responsible for North Korea's breakout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look, if David's responsible for all those bad trade deals back in the in the 90s, I think you have to take the North Korea thing full on. <laughs> I would point out a couple of differences between Iran and North Korea, and I think they may have to do with why the last four American presidents have tried to get a workable deal with the North Koreans and failed. And you could get a workable deal with the Iranians. The first is that the Iranian government 
has a claim to legitimacy, both domestically and internationally, that the North Koreans don't. Second, the Iranians see potential for for engagement with the international community with enrichment as a result of, by which I mean economic enrichment, not not weapons-grade uranium enrichment, um, that can solve some of their domestic problems. Whereas I think the North Koreans view their isolation as essential to maintaining control of the country and their nuclear weapons as essential to preserving their hold on power. And so I think it's actually, North Korea is actually a, a harder problem than Iran in terms of nuclear nonproliferation. I, I would also, agree with every bit of that. Well, excellent. That's, <laughs> I, I love it when all this agreement breaks out on this show. It only breaks out between me, Corey, and Dan, not with you. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I think, look, I think you guys are making some good points, but let's, let's get to sort of the broader question here. President Obama, during his Nobel Prize-winning whirlwind first year in office, um, made a speech uh, in Prague in which he promised to eliminate, you know, make the effort to eliminate nuclear weapons in the world. Um, and you know, had he made any major steps in that direction, he would certainly have earned the Nobel Prize that he won moments later. But actually, if we look around the world right now, there's a question. You know, are we better off or are we worse off? You guys believe, and I'm willing to entertain the possibility that you're correct, that with the Iran deal, we're moderately better off. We're better off with Iran. With Iran. But but not necessarily better off in the broader nuclear world. Exactly my point. So, but if you look at what's happened during in the same time period in Pakistan and you look at what's happened in North Korea – um, and you look at what's happened in Russia in terms of modernization of systems, but also the posture of the Russian government with regard to this thing, it would seem to me that we're actually worse off than we were rather than better off. Corey, how do you feel about that? I agree that we are worse off, but I do not believe nonproliferation policy is the reason we're worse off. You know, arms control, like the, like the law, or like court cases in which law gets interpreted, they're narrow and they're specific. And and when when we're fortunate, they advance modest gains. And I think that's the way to judge it. The fact that nobody's got a successful Pakistan policy isn't arms control's fault. It's it's a very hard problem. We need a lot of things from them, so we can't. And a lot of the policy tools that we thought would be useful, like cutting off assistance and, and military engagement with the Pakistanis after they did a nuclear test, turn out to have made the problem worse because what has happened is a whole generation of Pakistani military leaders have grown up without the restraining influence of of the United States. So it's just hard. The fact that the world has gotten worse under Obama foreign policy, I actually think is not narrowly attributable to their non-proliferation policy. No, no. And I, look, I'm not, I'm not saying it's attributable to non-proliferation policies alone. I'm saying that he made a pledge to try and address a problem. And if we look at the problem, we can assess whether it's better or worse and whether the world is safe or less safe 
um, on, on, on issues particularly of nuclear threats, uh, although I think we could also go and explore um, other WMD threats and indeed other kinds of threats. David, this has been your beat for a while. What's your take? Better off? So I, I agree with Corey. There are a whole bunch of things that happen in the world that were outside of Barack Obama's control here. Um, Putin coming back in. Putin not being interested in further arms control beyond the START treaty that was negotiated in 2010. The Pakistanis, uh, for internal political reasons and reasons of their competition with the Indians, being determined to deploy these incredibly dangerous uh, tactical nuclear weapons uh, that the U.S. has been quietly trying to get them to, to keep indoors. A range of other things. That said, I think there were a couple of mistakes made by the Obama administration or at least choices made by the Obama administration that uh, I think are worth revisiting. The first is that the price of getting the START Treaty through the Senate was to do an extraordinarily expensive spending spree on the modernization of our own nuclear forces. And while the numbers have not increased, there are certainly weapon systems that have gotten so capable and some that are proposed, including uh, the uh, nuclear cruise missile that Corey's colleague Bill Perry, the former Secretary of Defense, has written so eloquently uh, against, that I think we have done some things that the rest of the world can turn around and say is spurring other superpowers to go match us. And I think that's been a mistake. I think that there was a good opportunity for the president to act unilaterally eliminate one element of the triad, the one that's most vulnerable, which is the uh, the ground-based nuclear force, and bring our numbers down significantly and say that we are leading by example and do it in a way that wouldn't make us more vulnerable to a decapitating strike. So I think if any president could have done these things, it would have been President Obama. And I don't actually see much chance that they're going to happen no matter who gets elected in November. Dan. I think bottom line, uh, Putin is no Gorbachev. Uh, so that's a huge sort of caveat. However, that was soaring rhetoric we heard in Prague, possibly uh, over the top uh, because it was, it was not possible to deliver on that. I think you could have even said that at the time. Maybe I'm too harsh. But. And, uh, you know, the other thing is the cruise missile program is, is, is arguably a huge mistake. If it, it, it's a total contradiction of what he's laying out in that speech. And I'm not even sure you even need it. I, Corey, you're more expert in these systems than I am. But is there anything you can do with a nuclear cruise missile you couldn't do with a conventional one? Yeah, you can avoid ballistic missile intercepts because they're known trajectories. Yeah. I, I personally, the trade-off I would have made is I would have taken the cruise missile and given up the ICBMs. Uh, David Sanger made very good points about our example, the example that we set and possibly precipitating actions by others. I don't see a huge amount of evidence that other countries make choices about their nuclear programs on the basis of the choice we made. But I, I take the point about the vulnerability of the land-based ICBMs and would happily have traded them for uh, cruise missile uh, nuclear weapons, because I think they have a, a higher likelihood of actually holding at risk targets inside Russia 
than other states. It's a pretty good argument, I have to say, <laughs> and a pretty good trade-off. Yeah. yeah, well, that's why she's here, everyone. Yeah. But uh, David, as we look ahead, and this is the last question to East Tribune, does the next president of the United States, and by that I mean Hillary Clinton, inherit a safer or more dangerous world than the one inherited by Barack Obama? I think the next president of the United States inherits a more dangerous world, but ex with the exception of what we've just been discussing, the nuclear side, I'm not sure that the next president inherits a world that is more dangerous in an existential nature to the United States. Terrorism is always going to be a big issue, and there could be another terrorist attack, and we just saw in Orlando uh, a terrible one, but these are not the kinds of attacks that threaten the viability of the United States as a state unless the terrorists get their hands on nuclear weapons. And that's why I would have focused all of the more attention on this. And it's a hard thing way, politically you, to you do. You mean WMDs, right? Because yeah. bioweapons would do that. Yeah, bioweapons can. But bioweapons are a hard thing to deploy. I mean, you're depending on the wind blowing in the right way and they're volatile and you have to be in place to go put them there. It's not like a nuclear weapon that you can lob from a distance or even a cyber weapon that you can send from a distance. So bio is a threat. Um, but I'm not sure it's a threat necessarily on the scale that nuclear is because it's harder to control. So I think that, that the loss of focus on this nuclear uh, arena could turn out to be, have been a, a particularly dangerous one. Dan. Yeah. I mean, just look at how much airtime was devoted to these issues at the beginning in the first term. And look how much airtime it was given in the second term. I mean, it fell off the radar just in terms of their kind of public presentation. And, and so... I think we will have to – I mean it's a question, right? I mean it's – you have to wonder whether they drop the ball on trying to prevent terrorists getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction. And he often mentioned it himself, the president, as this is the most dangerous thing that we face. And he does at the nuclear security summits and that he's kept going. Yeah. Yes, but well, the, on the, the other hand, summit was – When we was, talk about weapons of mass destruction, it's I, – I, I can't help but point out – that in the past 50 years, more Americans have died from guns domestically than have died in all the wars fought in the history of the United States. Uh, and more Americans have died in the past 50 years than have died in all the world as a result of nuclear weapons from guns. So the definition of what is a weapon of mass destruction perhaps deserves a little bit um, of analysis. Uh, but we'll leave our national gun pathology for a different day. Corey, last word. More dangerous world. Our enemies are emboldened. Our allies are anxious. And the reason is because people doubt the United States uh, will actually defend its interests. Our credibility of the use of force and other diplomatic, economic, cultural tools, but also and this is a foreign policy podcast, not a domestic policy podcast, but our capacity to govern ourselves is also in question. And it goes to how others around the world view our ability to be a model. I agree with everybody. I think that the world is more dangerous now than it was. I think the challenges that Hillary Clinton will face when she comes into office as president are going to be fairly substantial. Um, but I do think that she has the ability to reset 
global perceptions of U.S. power and how it will be used very quickly. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people need to recognize about our system. Corey mentioned it on the last podcast. The president of the United States has a lot of latitude. Uh, and frankly, there are elements of the use of power that are not covered in arms control deals and that, that are not measurable that are much more significant in terms of public perceptions of safety and danger. And, and, and they include, for example, the swiftness with which a decision is reached, the clarity with which decisions are explicated, the effectiveness with which decisions are implemented within a government, um, the decisiveness of the actions taken. And it's quite possible that a Hillary Clinton early on in office can and I think will send a message that uh, some of the dithering some of the lack of clarity that may have been a hallmark of this administration uh, will uh, be set aside and that we will return to something that's a little bit more traditional in America's role in the world. That's speculation. Of course, she might not win the election, but I choose not to think of that. Um, uh, only because, and By the way, I'm perfectly happy to have Republican or Democratic presidents, I think, Donald Trump is sweet, generous, um, and does not warrant the same kind of treatment that other candidates do or may do uh, because he has disqualified himself. Uh, in any event, as we approach this election and as we approach these issues, you will surely hear them discussed here on the ER with a kind of thoughtfulness that is impossible uh, anywhere else except when David Sanger lies in bed talking to himself, um, um, which happens most afternoons, actually. In, in the office. In, in, the office um, in any event, thank you, David, for joining us again. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Corey, for joining us. Thank you, all of you out there, for joining us. Send in show ideas. We'll send you these valuable mugs. Um, and uh, keep coming back for more ER here at FP. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. 
Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.